I'm Logan Bishop from Belmont University. And I'm Jenna Spinelli from Penn State. You're listening to Higher Ed Social, part of the Connect EDU network. Liz, welcome to Higher Ed Social. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here again. Yeah, right. Second time. And so we should say that um, Logan is not with us um, while we are recording this. But the last time he was on, it was just the two of you. So we're going to put it together and we'll have have a full episode. Um, So folks can go back and listen to the last one and then hear this one, get the get the full picture. Um, Sounds like a plan. Yeah. So, uh, Liz, for for folks who might not have listened to the the first episode or might have forgotten because you know pandemic brain, um, can you remind us? And I think I think maybe the last time you're on was even before you started at Campus Sonar. So, catch us up. What have what are what are you doing these days? Yeah, I think the last time I was on Higher Ed Social, I knew Campus Sonar was going to be a thing, but it was still in the secret phase. (laughs) So I I couldn't talk about it too much. So um, three plus years later, that seems like forever. uh, I am the founder and CEO of Campus Sonar, which is a higher education focused social listening focused agency that works with campuses and other higher ed partners to better understand audiences, provide market intelligence, and essentially help our clients build trust with their target audiences by understanding what's being said from them and about them online. So I find myself now as like a higher ed entrepreneur um, after working on campus and then in higher ed adjacent land for quite some time. and. Three and a, three and a half years seems like a really really long time, but it also feels like just yesterday that mm-hmm. we started Campus Sonar. So time is indeed a weird flat circle. <laughs> yeah, so um, it seems like you guys really took off pretty quickly when you when you started. I feel like I went, you know, I've I feel like I've heard about Campus Sonar forever, but um, what uh, how how has the the past year been for you with with all things, all things pandemic, how has social listening changed? Yeah. So social listening itself hasn't changed much at all. We're, we're doing a lot of the same things. Um, we tend to need to do like pre COVID and post COVID now when we do analyses. So we are, um, doing a lot more historical analysis to help people understand what, what is happening now looks like in context with what was happening before, even if they weren't listening then. So that gives us, you know, longer timeframes, bigger data sets to look at. But I guess the one thing that we are doing differently that we weren't before is we're also looking industry level for social listening insights and not just working with campuses. So we're now working on um, different streams of research within our membership service called Stream where we're actually looking at what are people saying about college admissions on a regular basis? How are alumni talking about their alma mater on a regular basis? How can we benchmark what's happening about campuses to replicate sort of the industry in in some different reports? What are people saying about online classes? That is new and different for us. The techniques are the same, but the output is different. And that was really inspired by the coronavirus industry briefings mm-hmm. that we did 
last mm-hmm. spring. That was our first chance of listening at scale. So that's how our work is different. But of course, as a company, like we're all working from our homes, which was not the norm for all of us. I actually just uh, packed up my belongings from the office yesterday because we are not going to have an office for the foreseeable future right now. Yeah, It doesn't make sense. So we've been adjusting uh, as we could, and we're getting ready to onboard some brand new team members completely remotely, as I'm sure a lot of folks have had to do on campus too. So mm-hmm. the year was long. I am one of those folks that has not left their home very often mm-hmm. in the last 11 months. Uh, and I'm not going to be at the top of the list to be vaccinated. So I'm just yeah. hanging out, doing our work online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Big same, big same. Um, so I know you probably don't want to give away like too much of the, the secret sauce, so to speak, but can you talk a little bit about some of those techniques, like how social listening actually happens? Yeah, we give away a lot of secret sauce <laughs> all the time, actually. Um, so First things first, when we're doing social listening at Campus Sonar, we are making sure that we are using some sort of software that provides both breadth in terms of where it is crawling for mentions. We don't want something that's just Twitter-centric or is just looking at Instagram, for example. And also depth. We want to be able to really control uh, the context of what we're searching for. Worst case scenario for us would be like, we're searching for the name of a campus that is also the name of a city and a famous person and maybe two other campuses, all of which could be true. Uh, and what we come back with is what you could have found on Twitter and it's full of garbage because it has a lot of things that don't mean it. So we've got to use software that um, has the capabilities to do that. And then we have to write really, really good queries. So if you ever look at the Campus Sonar blog, sometimes our analysts write for it. And those are the super nerdy posts where they really get into, you know, how do we decide what we want to query? How do we determine um, how to clean the data that comes back or how we're going to segment it? So just all of that structure that goes into the research process is... um, somewhat the secret sauce like we don't we don't keep it secret because we know not everybody can do it on their own and that's mm-hmm. why we exist beyond that right. it's making sense of the data like in any given project we're working with thousands to hundreds of thousands sometimes over a million individual mentions and you can't just like throw up a word cloud and expect that to give you some insights. So we're essentially acting like qualitative researchers and coding and categorizing uh, what comes back into things that will make sense for our partners. So really basic high level stuff is athletics conversation versus non-athletics conversation, which always surprises people. I, I hesitate to use the word always, but I think I can confidently say always surprises people if they have athletics on campus how much of the total conversation about their campus is related to athletics. Doesn't matter if your team is good or bad or uh, in division three or even like outside of the NCAA, (laughs) it is a massive (laughs) amount of conversation. Um, So using all those so that you can approach social conversation and social listening as a research method, instead of just like checking your social inbox is really the totality of the, the secret sauce behind what we do. Mm-hmm. We've literally written books to give it away if yeah. folks want to read it. <laughs> well, and this seems like something that like the corporate world has probably been doing for years and years and years now, but higher ed just hadn't. Is that right? 
That is true. Um, I've been exposed to corporate social listening strategies ever since I started going to non-higher ed industry conferences. I think my first time at South by Southwest was probably 2010-11-ish, and it was definitely being talked about then. And then I went to a social media strategy summit in 2013, and it was, you know, core part of the conversation. So hospitality, big brands, travel industry, they've all been doing this for a decade plus now. Mm -hmm. So it's nice for higher ed catch up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I make the joke sometimes that whenever, whenever higher ed jumps on board with something, you know, it's going to like jump the shark. So now with like clubhouse, for example, like, you know, that like when colleges start getting on there, it's going to be like, that's the end of it. Forget about it. I have this like deep rooted, um, desire to stay as far away from clubhouse as possible. <laughs> like that's not my professional advice, but my personal opinion is I've heard so much, icky stuff about it that I don't want to touch it yeah I've done a couple like podcasting rooms on there and um there's like a burgeoning Penn State alumni group on there that I like keep tabs on um but yeah I'm not like on it every single the kind of the, the weirdest thing I saw was that somebody was on there was one morning, I think she was like in labor, like first clubhouse baby, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation oh, gosh. point. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's our life right now. People have babies oh. on clubhouse. I'm sure there's lots of good there, but from my perception, it was founded from and for a bunch of folks just steeped in privilege mm -hmm. and they may have no desire to be accessible for people who can't use an audio only format. And yeah. I, I am a diehard Taylor Lorenz groupie. If anyone listening doesn't know who I'm talking about, um, she currently writes for the New York Times, used to work for the Atlantic. She's just an amazing social slash tech slash pop culture mm -hmm. journalist. And she's just been vilified on Clubhouse for mm -hmm. being a journalist, for being a woman, for a variety of things. And when Taylor Lorenz tells me something is icky, I tend to believe her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, well, uh, I, I totally, yeah, I take, take all that. Uh, it would be great. Actually, I, I could see Campus Sonar doing like a virtual event with Taylor Lorenz or something like, I don't know, she seems like she's very up on social listening also, and like might have some things to say for people in, in higher ed about what the kids these days are into. I have briefly corresponded with her and she has some very strict restrictions because she works for the New York Times, mm -hmm. but I do hope that that can happen someday. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting you talk about like going to non higher ed conferences. Was that a big, like a big hurdle for you with wh wherever you were working at the time to kind of get permission to, to do that, to break outside the box, so to speak? If I remember correctly, the first, so I know the first time I attended South by Southwest, I was in a marketing director role at what any state other than Wisconsin would call a community college, but we didn't. Um, and if I remember correctly, I didn't ask for permission. I didn't ask for money and I took time off to go. Like I, for some reason, I felt like it was for me and not for them, which is silly. 
Uh, <laughs> but that was how I approached <laughs> it. And then the next time that I went, I went the following year and I co-presented with Deb Maui, who's now the VP uh, for comms at Aurora. I had met her at the prior South by Southwest, and we led a conversation about social media and higher ed. This would have been probably 2012. Uh, and the room was packed, like standing room only. And I know I wasn't funded by my employer to go. I'm fairly certain I didn't take vacation that time, though. Um, so it was really something that I pursued on my own. I had mentors who were going that I really wanted to follow <laughs> and be there to support them and see yeah. how I was doing. And then after that, shortly after that, I moved into higher ed adjacent land where I worked at the student loan servicer. And then it was more like I had to convince them a higher ed conference was worth my time and all the other ones just <laughs> made sense. Yeah. 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 I'm so curious to know who was, who at South by Southwest was packing the room for a, a, a panel on social media and in a higher, not to say that wasn't, you guys didn't put on a, a good, a good, you know, session, but just, it seems like a very, an audience that couldn't care less about what higher ed is doing. It was at the time, and I don't know if it's still the case, if and when South by Southwest becomes a, an in-person event again, at the time, in like the early 2010s, there was an interesting, somewhat close-knit or became close-knit group of higher ed folks that would show up. Um, and Penn State actually did a, a higher ed meetup at, at the event for a while. Now, packed in that room at South by Southwest was probably like 170 people. So there were thousands of South by Southwest folks who weren't there. Sure. But it sure. was like it was faculty. It was some campus marketers who were there, of mm -hmm. course, vendors who want to sell the higher ed. Um, mm -hmm. But I've actually gone back. I'm really sad that Storify is no longer a thing because I had Storified all the tweets oh, and I could see yeah. who was actually in the session. But I never went and moved that after I archived it. RIP Storify. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, indeed. Yeah, I used to use it all the time in my class. I teach journalism. And so that was a great way for them to like put things together for me to grade and, and to, for them to share too if they were out covering something. But yeah. So many dead links on my personal blog. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned uh, books before Campus Sonar has put out books. And uh, Logan said if, if he was here tonight, he was excited to talk to you about your latest book. Is I don't know if this is a, a personal book or a Campus Sonar book or maybe both. It's pretty much both. Um, actually, it started as a personal book and then became a Campus Sonar book. Um, so our latest is called Fundamentals of Social Media Strategy, a guide for college campuses. And it is essentially a reboot and massive expansion on a short ebook that I published on my own, gosh, six years ago now, I think. I had put together like a 20-page um, guide to higher ed social media strategy, really high level. It was actually meant to be a chapter in a larger book about education and social media. And after I spent all the time writing the chapter, the editor was like, just kidding. We don't want it. And I was really oh, angry. No. <laughs> Eventually realized like, you know what? I'm just going to do it anyway. So I published that on my own back in like 2016 or something like that um, on my personal website. And then at the end of 2019, like the second half of 2019, 
I started noticing an uptick of downloads. Like I'd made the book free after a couple of years and Mm. people were still downloading it and still using it. And I was like, oh, it could be so much better now. (laughs) What I wrote back in 2016, I've learned so much more. I've seen so many more examples. So I asked my marketing manager, like, would we want to put this out if I gave it a quick update? (laughs) I was like, it'll be really fast. And she said, yes. Um, so I transferred the intellectual property over to Campus Sonar. So it is now a Campus Sonar mm-hmm. book and got started on expanding it. And that 20 page book turned into a 20 chapter book that tops 300 pages that we still are giving away for free. Um, but it's really like what I wish I could give somebody when they ask me, what do I need to know about social media and higher education? I just either wrote it all down mm-hmm. or got some guest contributors to fill in where I didn't think I was the best one. Um, and it's jam packed with everything from starting your strategy to talking with executives, to staffing your team, uh, to doing content, measuring all the way through to professional development and, and ongoing learning. So anyone listening, go grab that book. Uh, if you go to my Twitter profile, yeah. it's pinned at the top. So go to LizGross144 on Twitter. Probably the easiest way to find it. Okay. Well, and we'll put it in the in the show notes too, so folks can can get to it from there. Um, so what I mean, it it seems to me that the biggest hurdle might be for social media media managers is to find the time to actually read this thing, right? Especially if you're like like a team of of one. Uh, who's already doing social and maybe some other things in addition to, to that. Um, so if you, if anyone listening is already kind of strapped for, for time and, and, and attention and, uh, you know, particularly as we still navigate the, the pandemic, is there, is there a place that you would recommend folks start? Or if you can only maybe de- can't devote time to, to read the whole thing right now, like a, a couple chapters to really hit on? Yeah, it all depends what what someone needs right then to help them, right? Um, it, the book is in sections, so the 20 chapters are in, I have to remember how many sections we wrote, three sections, four sections, uh, but the first section is all about overarching strategy. So if you're really stuck with like explaining the purpose of social media or you were hired to start something where nothing exists, that first section is going to be the most valuable to you. Um, the second section is all about content. So if you're more of like, I know why I'm here. I just don't know what I should do. (laughs) That, that second section would be good. Um, the third section is kind of a hodgepodge of answering very specific questions. So it has like, you know, the, the how to's of engagement strategy or crisis management or measurement that's all in there. So you could find the chapter that matches what Mm -hmm. you need. If what you're looking for is just, you know, help me figure out where I fit in all of this, like who are my people, where should I be learning from all of that, that's Mm -hmm. chapter 20. Um, If you're trying to make a case for what staff to get, that's in section one for staffing. So honestly, just like open up the table of contents and choose your own adventure. But some very, very (laughs) ambitious readers claim to have done the whole thing in a day. So if you've got a day, binge mm. it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe you guys can make an audio book form or something like that or put it out as like as a podcast and in installments or something. Have you been talking um, to my marketing team? <laughs> <laughs> something similar maybe in the works. Oh, cool. Cool. Well, uh, keep us posted and we'll we'll share it for sure. Um, Absolutely. So, thinking about uh, you know social listening again more more broadly, do does does your approach and your tactic change based on the audience that you're working with? You know, prospective students versus alumni, current students versus parents. You know, whatever those dichotomies might be. A little bit, yeah. Um, we know that certain audiences or topics tend to congregate on certain platforms. Um, and it's also around like, do you wanna know the thoughts and behaviors and actions of a certain group of people or do you wanna understand perceptions of a brand? Like both of those take us to different places. If we're looking for uh, insights about a certain group of people, we tend to focus really uh, strongly on social sites and forums. So we will take out everything related to news. Uh, we will take out most of what's related to blogs, although depending on the topic, Tumblr might stay because there's still a lot of Tumblr activity out there for, for certain subtopics. Uh, but Reddit and other forums, we love for research because you tend to get more information out of the posts, more context, even if they're uh, anonymous, you get a lot more information. And then um, Twitter and uh, Twitter and Instagram are going to be huge there. Whereas if we're looking for brand reputation, we want to cast as wide a net as possible so that we can not just understand where everything is being discussed, but also to compare and contrast if certain sources influence the other, right? So is certain types of news coverage mm -hmm. spurred by social media or is news coverage influencing how people talk on social media? Like that's really important from a brand perspective, but not helpful if what we want to know is how do certain students talk about the process and we found that depending on what people are talking about um, where they're doing it can be different so even in the admissions journey uh, we know that prospective students are more likely to have conversations on forums about the journey whereas once they're admitted they're just telling the whole world so that's when everything starts to pop up mm -hmm. on, on twitter and instagram so you as you get to know mm -hmm. the industry and the audiences that definitely varies mm -hmm. and do do people come to you like they think they they're like they're looking to to validate an assumption that i that may or, or probably turns out to be wrong if they, if they you know, you guys in the business of like helping people, you know, debunk what they think they know about their, their audiences or, you know, what people are saying. We get a little bit of that. Uh, we also get a lot of folks who are very happy to pay for data that proves what they already had a hunch <laughs> about. Like there, there is a role for social listening that, you know, I believe most social media managers have a good gut feeling about their community if they're spending a lot of time with their community. But depending on their resources and their time, they might not have the ability to quantify that in any way. And depending where you're at on the org chart and what your 
relationships are like in the organization, that gut feeling might not be trusted. But if it's backed up with data that follows a fairly scientific method, that can be what helps someone explain to like the cabinet level, you know, these are the concerns of our students, or these are when people, this is when people talk about us negatively. And we actually have a bunch of really happy clients who say, you're finding what I expected, but you're equipping me to have this conversation with leadership in a way that I couldn't before. So I love it when we find something that's new, but we don't always do that. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's also a lot of like power dynamics baked in there, right? So if I'm thinking about like a social media manager as like, I don't know, a 20 something professional, you know, younger professional versus the person that might be on the receiving end of this information is like, a you know, 50 something, you know, older white man, for example. And that's, you know, there's lots of different dynamics there. But is that there, I do... I mean, do you guys think about those those types of things too, about who's who's asking for this information or who like interacts with these conversations day to day on social versus who's ultimately gonna be looking at the the data in the end? Yeah, I think a a lot of what beyond power dynamics, what feeds into us being able to to share that data in a way that could resonate with the cabinet or the board is my team and I have often sat at the levels in the organization that are at or right below the, the VP. So we know the strategic questions to ask and how to frame the data in a way that makes sense to them. So we are never going to use, you know, social media lingo <laughs> to speak mm-hmm. to a client at the VP or presidential level. And that is a little bit like nothing against the early career social media manager. I, I wasn't ready in my 20s to talk at a strategic organizational level. Um, And some folks are just like, they have to be in it. Yeah, you've got to be talking to the people and putting out the content. And you're not necessarily given the time or the space to think about how is this impacting our reputation goals or our enrollment goals. And when we can step back and figure out how to answer the question with that frame, that can really help sort of jump a few levels in an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to ask, what what are people still talking about on Tumblr? <laughs> uh, so there are certain communities that I see really active on Tumblr. And I haven't been in Tumblr deep in six months or so. So I can't tell you what they're talking about now, but I can tell you who they are. Um, mm. So the art community, really active on Tumblr. So making art, sharing art, talking about art. I recently did a project for an art school and their second most common source of conversation was Tumblr. So that was absolutely happening for them. Um, the LGBTQ plus community, anyone who identifies as queer, is tends to be more active on Tumblr. Uh, we see a lot of... Um, just like broad queer community conversation on Tumblr. So if that's a group that you need to understand more about or understand how they are talking about certain life events, that's a good place to see it. Um, Anyone who's in a fandom 
So like super nerds that are really excited about whether it be Taylor Swift or, um, you know, comic book movies or anything like that. Fandoms are super popular all over Tumblr. So may not be relevant to most of higher ed, but if, if certain degree programs intersect with that sort of fandom, that, that can be important there as well. And then those folks, you know, talk about other things as well. I really started to realize the impact of Tumblr when we were looking at conversations about COVID-19 and higher ed. And there were people using Tumblr, essentially, like I used would use live journal back when I was a teenager, right? It's, it is still a place where people talk about their day to day. So you can see how people are, are experiencing things that are important to them. And then how based on how much that experience has been amplified via reblogging, how much that resonates with other people. But there's definitely some some niche communities on Tumblr. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I bet if Logan was here, he would have been able to to tell me that too. That and he'd probably have some joke about about how how out of touch I am or, you know, I clearly am not into any of these things that you were just talking about. He would have uh, jumped in with some fandoms that. that I didn't understand at yeah. all. So <laughs> I'm going to stick with Taylor Swift. That's what I've got. Yeah. Um, so Liz, what, I know you said you're getting ready to, to bring on some new team members. What's uh, what's up next on your, on your horizon as you look out to the rest of this year? Yeah. So we are um, just about to bring on a new person on our marketing team. Um, we circulated that job posting like right around the holidays. Um, that's really going to help us scale the the feel and the ethos behind how Campus Sonar wants to communicate with people to what we need to do to grow our business. So uh, for folks listening, I-, I shared a really long thread back in December about what we were looking for in this person, why we were hiring them, what it looked like, and mm-hmm. got a really good feedback, got really good feedback about why we were, how we were sharing the job. And I had to chuckle I think I'm going to say this here publicly for the first time. Um, how many people were, were, you know, saying really nice things about how we shared the job, what the job was going to be, all that sort of thing. When when you read it correctly, the job means we're going to send more emails to people on campus. <laughs> and if there's anything anyone on campus likes to complain about, uh, rightfully so, it's crappy vendor emails. <laughs> So that role Mm -hmm. is to help us scale email outreach in a way that feels right to us. So we're going to be playing around with that, um, Mm -hmm. mostly through the second half of 2021. And then our other additions, which we are recruiting for right now and might still be recruiting for when this goes live, are... uh, folks that do the work for our clients. So we're adding a social media data analyst, mm-hmm. we're adding a social media or a strategist, and that's to join existing teams that have those folks. So we are mm-hmm. we are growing a lot. Um, we had an increase in clients served of over 200% from 2020 compared to 2019. Um, we sold over 400% more in 2020 as we did in 2019 and we're going to keep growing. And since we're not just like a plug and play repeat with everybody sort of business, mm-hmm. we've got to grow our team as we grow. So by the end of 2021, there will be a whopping 15 people 
in Campus Sonar will still be geographically distributed. And at that point, we should, gosh, we might be near 50 concurrent clients at that point, which would um, terrify wow. some of my team members <laughs> if they hear that. But uh, <laughs> it's in the plans and they've seen the plans. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it should be pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is wild trying to grow a business in a pandemic in an industry mm-hmm. that is feeling pressure from all sides, but so mm-hmm. far so good. And I'm looking forward to keeping it going. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Um, congratulations on everything you've, you've done so far. Um, we'll link to the book in, in the, the show notes and uh, every, all the other good stuff Campus Sonar does. And I really appreciate you taking the time today, Liz. Thanks so much, Jenna. We'll tell Logan what he missed on. We will. We'll we'll put it on Tumblr. He can find it there. Yes. (laughs) Listeners, head down to highered.social and get links to the stuff we talked about today and subscribe to our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us and it lets us know what you think of the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at HES Podcast and send us a tweet. We love talking to you and don't forget to let us know if you want to be on the show. Higher Ed Social was created by Jackie Vitrano and Logan Bishop and is produced by the awesome Emma Haas. We're part of the Connect EDU network, the first podcast network for higher education. Visit the website connectedu.network and subscribe to some awesome shows no matter where you work on campus. Thanks, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.